Jenny's words remind me of the words of St. Augustine who defined sin, sin as the failure to properly order good things. So sin isn't necessarily choosing bad things. It's the failure to order things that are good. And money and possessions, of course, are good, but they can become disordered in our lives. Okay, I've started another sermon already. Let's pray. Gracious God, on this uh, beautiful summer day with smoky skies, we pray for uh, health and restoration around us and within us. Uh, teach us today through your uh, famous and immortal words from Matthew 6. In Jesus' name, amen. Martin Luther famously said, there is no such thing as an atheist. And, and no, it wasn't, uh, that wasn't the, uh, there is, is no atheist in a foxhole comment. He just said, no, there is no such thing as an atheist. Everyone, said Luther, has a God they worship, a master they serve. For whatever or whoever you put your trust in, is your God. By this he meant that we all have something that gets us out of bed in the morning, that makes life worth living for. Whoever you put your ultimate trust in is your master and your God, whether it's money, success, uh, Joel Osteen, or God. Choose carefully, though. You do not, uh, rather, not, you do want a trustworthy God that does not leave you at the altar. The gospel lesson today is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and these words are targeted first and foremost for his own disciples, who needed to be reminded of the proper order of things, as Jenny uh, reminded us, might have been more difficult for them in some ways. Remember, they had all given up their livelihoods, their possessions, to follow Jesus into a life of essentially poverty. Understandably, sometimes their faith must have uh, lagged a bit when they thought about the good old days when they had material wealth and comfort. But they're not alone, are they? Human beings are prone to making gods of such things as material wealth and comfort. Particularly, we in the West are. And it's not just the materially blessed who make these things into gods either. Those of modest means can worship money and possessions just as much as the 1%, as those who lack things can covet these things from a distance and in the worst way make them their gods. It is abundantly clear in Scripture that money and possessions are the greatest competitor for the title of God in our lives, and it's not even close. In fact, money is the most frequently mentioned subject in the Bible. Did you know that? A lot of times people say, Pastor, don't bring up money. Let's get back to talking about God and spirituality. Well, there's nothing more spiritual than money because of what Jesus says. 
it is a deeply spiritual subject. Biblically, money and possessions are treated synonymously, by the way. The word mammon means both money and possessions. So what we do with our money is spiritual and theological and in a big way. It is an area where we regularly get our gods mixed up, disordered. Luther wrote that as our true God, we are to fear, love, and trust. You remember that phrase, fear, love, and trust? How many learned that phrase in the, memorizing the small catechism a long time ago? It's okay. You can, um, a God above all things, fear, love, and trust. So, do we fear money? Well, we fear not having money. <laughs> um, for Luther and in the Bible, the word fear is misunderstood often. It means, more uh, precisely for us, respect. A very reverent respect. Notice the reverent respect we have in our culture for money and financial worth which creates a kind of taboo of sorts. For instance, how often do you hear people ask at parties, so, how much money do you make? Or, some of us were just wondering, Bob, um, so what is your personal financial worth? You hear that a lot? No. <laughs> We know in our culture that you don't ask such a thing. What do you think about it? Um, it's not terribly personal information. After all, it's just numbers. And yet, these numbers somehow measure a whole lot more than just dollars, don't they? They measure our worth as a person in our culture. Or they measure our shame. I'm not the first one to point out that this is a sign of money's sacred status. And as something sacred, it's shrouded in secrecy as though it were the holiest of holies. And the more secret it is, the less chance our money has of being properly ordered in life, as we are asked to do. We do indeed fear money, make it holy, in the sense Luther and Scripture meant it, I think. Do we love money? I do. <laughs> about you. I mean, don't ask me why I'm a pastor. Um, I guess I'm conflicted. Anybody else here love money? All right. God bless you for confessing and being honest. Um, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, it says. I was thinking um, about church stewardship campaigns that refer to time, treasure, talents. <laughs> Think about it. Even in the church, we refer to our money as our treasure, and if that's the case, that's where our hearts are. <laughs> yeah, we love money. But should we love things that can't love us back? And what about trust? If you serve money or material, material wealth or success or power or pleasure, do you notice something about all those things? Well, they're things <laughs> or concepts. We may trust them. But are they trustworthy? How would you answer that? A Mustang convertible can probably be trusted to get you from point A to point B, probably. But can it be trusted to make your life worth living? 
to save you from sin, death, and the power of evil? Not the last time I checked, but I, you know, I haven't seen the latest commercials. Could have made improvements. Your success in your line of work, whatever it is, can probably be trusted to provide a paycheck for you now, maybe even open a few doors for you if you've done really well, but can it be trusted to make you whole as a person? Of course not. The kind of trust Luther is talking about where someone is your master, your God, requires two things. Then and only then can someone be worthy of your ultimate trust, number one in your life. First, that someone or something has to be capable of giving you what you need most, what you need to be whole. And second, that someone has to have the character such that they warrant our trust and are therefore trustworthy. Tall order. When considered for ultimate trust, whether it's money, things, or concepts, there can be no trust here. For starters, these things cannot deliver to you what is necessary, the false gods that we have in life. Um, they cannot deliver to you a meaningful life, the defeat of sin and brokenness, a victory over death. But neither are they trustworthy for the simple reason that things or concepts don't care about you. Our money can't love us the way, <laughs> the way we love money, for instance. And so... And so, this is important, we will worry because of that, because the things we value the most, typically for many of us, let's be honest, we can't trust at all, either for what they can deliver or for being trustworthy, on either count. Oh, but maybe none of these things that seduce us are the real master after all. The truth is we probably know that we we can't trust money or success as a God, but maybe our trust ends up being in the one who can put us in a position to achieve those things. Namely, moi. Oneself. So let me ask you this. How much can you trust in yourself to deliver all those things that you love, that you want, that you need, that you measure your worth by so on and so on. How much can we depend on ourselves to be our own God? No wonder we're worried. And we should be. If we trust God, we can rest assured that just as he clothes the lilies of the field with beauty, he will do the same with us. He will provide for the whole of life and its destiny not just food and clothing. Oh, yes, they're important, but this is bigger than that. This, then, is the basis for an entirely different way of, of living, which is why these verses all fit together somehow. Seem disjointed a little bit when you read them. Not so. In dwelling in this passage this past week with, uh, with some of you, one question um, uh, uh, people had was, how can you just not worry, relax, and do nothing, <laughs> expecting God to provide? Easy to read those verses that way. Oh, don't worry, just don't worry about it. Just uh, take it easy, pour yourself a drink, let God worry about it. Well, 
important distinction. Jesus never said, do nothing. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> See the difference? Trusting in God doesn't mean you won't have a certain stress level, making sure you've completed your assignments at work or school, run errands uh, necessary to connect the dots in your life, uh, tried to be a good friend, neighbor, and family member. Life's many demands require us to be efficient and to use our gifts, uh, not sit around and wait for God to make things happen for us. In fact, we're called by God to act in these ways. Interestingly, it's been said that as Christians, we should pray like everything depends on God and live like everything depends on us. Now, there's some, there's some truth to that, but a better version is this. Pray like everything depends on God and live like everything depends not on you, but on God and you working together in a partnership. Indeed, God's MO in this world is to accomplish God's will through people. So use your gifts. Get off the couch. You and God are partners. Just don't worry about it. Trust that there's a benevolent hand at work. And as you work together, trust that you are in the hands of a loving God who is trustworthy, who knows what you need better than you do. That said, we all want to be realistic here, and, and we all know that no matter how much we believe and no matter how loving God is, there are sparrows that fall from the sky. There are people who starve to death and some who face terminal cancer. Well, what do you do with these realities? Uh, first of all, we all have a very important calling as human beings to be God's representatives on earth and take care of the earth and the people living in it. So if someone starves to death, there's a real strong chance it's, become, it's because human beings were negligent or uncaring. This doesn't mean God is not trustworthy. It means God is self-limiting and entrusts the message of love and stewardship of the planet to you and me the ones made in God's image. So before blaming God for everything, we ought to look in the mirror as individuals and as a human race. Then get to work to be better partners with God in co-creating a more trustworthy world. I think that's part of it. Not to explain it away, but God works with us and through us. In the meantime, we are invited to consider the words of Jesus today. Trust that even when things don't go your way and there are basic things you are lacking and it's painful either in you or a loved one, even then, trust that in the broader scheme of things, God is taking care of you and your loved one. You will have what you need for the present. Restoration will come to you, for it is promised, if not completely in this life, in the next. The verses we read today must be read in the context not merely of this limited, finite life, but of God's promised future that extends into eternity. Because this God is the real deal, complete wholeness and restoration can be accomplished with us. Because this God is trustworthy, we can count on God's promise 
that our restoration will come to pass. And so, we live in the tension between the now and the not yet, right? And as we do, Jesus invites us to consider how much God, in fact, blesses us each day because God cares about us. And as we learn to trust in the providence of God for today and for our future, we can, we can learn to worry less. What does this have to do with stewardship? I, I just have uh, two, two sentences and I'm done. Um, ha- this. One who is grateful and trusting in God worries less about oneself and more about others. This is the very wellspring of a generous heart. Amen.